0: One of the teachings that Jesus gave to his disciples was that it was necessary and important for him to go to the Father. You may remember Jesus telling his disciples that he needed to go away and where he was going, they could not follow him, which generated all kinds of questions from the disciples about that very statement. And why was it so important for Jesus to leave? Why was it so important that he go back to the father? Uh, The ascension of Jesus uh, probably doesn't receive uh, enough of an emphasis that it ought to receive. We uh, easily talk about Jesus coming, the incarnation and the importance of that we talk about the perfect life that he lived we talk about his death and the necessity of him laying down his life and the necessity of him to take that life back up and raise from the dead but why going back to the father why is that so important and just as equally important as the other steps of coming living perfectly dying and raising Uh, And that's what Acts chapter 1 spends time talking about. And we're going to look at the ascension this morning and ultimately why the ascension matters and why it matters to us today here in 2020. Jesus, as we noted last week, has been speaking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. And please note that in Acts chapter 1 and in verse 3, it says that he had been speaking to them for 40 days so that would have been great 40 straight days of Jesus teaching directly about the kingdom of God in that discussion about the kingdom of God we're told in verses 4 and 5 some of the details which was that there was the promise of the father God had made certain promises of what was going to happen regarding the kingdom of God. And not only that, even further stating uh, in verse 5 that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We talked about the connection of what God was doing in regards to His promises of the coming of the kingdom and what that looked like in regards to the Holy Spirit. That leads to the disciples Asking a question before this sudden ascension of Jesus. And you will notice the question in verse 6. Where they come together and they ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, it has been a favorite thing for preachers and scholars to completely crush the disciples here for asking this question. What were they thinking? How could they ask something like this? That they are asking a really bad question and they are looking for this physical kingdom still, even after all of this time. And how could the disciples be so dense to still do that? Well, I want to take a step back and consider that maybe what they are asking is not an inappropriate question at all. The reason why I want to challenge that is because I think what can stick us are the words restoring the kingdom to Israel. And that doesn't sound right. Did God promise a restoration of the kingdom to Israel? And I think on the surface, when we read that, we go, see, that sounds very physical. Why would they think that? And and how would they keep thinking that there would be this physical kingdom that would be established? As I did last Sunday, I would love to take you all over the prophets and show you all the places that describe the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. I will narrow it down quickly to just three like I did last week because there's a lot of places where we see God promising such a restoration. But let me quickly show you where the disciples would have been coming from. For example, here is a certain messianic prophecy, Isaiah 49 and verse 5. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. Notice a picture of Israel being restored to God. That's what's being promised here. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant and to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Notice the promise is not only will I restore Israel, bring them back, establish them again, but I'll also do it for the whole world. It'll go to the ends of the earth. And so there is the promise of Israel's restoration. Amos 9, verse 11, after Amos just completely tears apart the northern nation of Israel, chapter after chapter for their sins, it ends with these final words of hope. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Notice Israel's being rebuilt. It's being restored. There is an image of restoration to the kingdom of Israel. In fact, a little bit later in that very prophecy, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. Amos gives prophecy about though Israel will be destroyed and judged and carried away, Israel will be restored, Israel will be rebuilt, and God will restore its fortunes. How about Daniel chapter 7, verse 27? Daniel 7 is a huge prophecy about, about the various kingdoms and their rise and fall and how God's kingdom would be established and eliminate all other kingdoms. And it ends with the kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. Now, if you were in the days of Daniel, who are the holy ones of the most high? <laughs> Israel. So there is a concept of a restoration of Israel that is found. And I think it's important that when we read that the disciples are asking, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? We do not have to assume that they are only thinking in a shallow physical establish the throne in Jerusalem kind of mentality that even the Old Testament prophets when they were talking about this massive restoration of bringing the true spiritual people of God in use that very language we're going to restore Israel we're going to put it back we're going to have God restore his kingdom. Restore his blessings, offer forgiveness and mercy and grace and bring about salvation to the ends of the earth. In fact, not only do you do you see that, I think not only is it inappropriate to presume that verse six is saying that they are asking the wrong question. But if you think about verse seven, Jesus answer is not. Oh, my dear disciples, how long must I dwell with you that you keep asking these bad questions like we've done all of these other days and how you think in such ways. Jesus talked like that when he needed to. He would tell his disciples, you are way off base. That's one of my favorites when you have like uh, uh, James and John, we want to sit on your left and right hand. Do you really know what you're asking when you say something like that? Jesus is willing to challenge when his disciples are going the wrong direction. But the way that Jesus answers the question is an implied affirmative. And I want us to see there's three reasons then ultimately why to see what the disciples are saying is a positive. Number one, how many days has Jesus been teaching the apostles about the kingdom of God? Forty days, okay, not 40 minutes, 40 days of teaching. Here's what the kingdom is all about. Here's what's going to happen when I pour out my spirit. And here's what's going to take place about this restoration. Jesus has been teaching his disciples after his resurrection for 40 days about this. And and, and second, that the wording, restoring the kingdom to Israel is not foreign to the prophets. The prophets also spoke like that. That's the second. And then number three, Jesus' answer does not say, no, you've got this all wrong. Rather, his answer in verse seven is, it's not for you to know the day and time. That's an implied affirmative. Uh, Are you going to restore it now? Well, I'm not going to tell you. It's going to be at this day and at that time. I'm not going to give you a date. I'm not going to give you a time. I'm not going to say it's going to be on, uh, what is today? We're in October, right? It's not going to be, you know 2020, goodness. It's not going to be October 18th, and I'm not going to tell it to you like that. It's not for you to know that I'm going to give it to you on a calendar the day and time. But here's what I will tell you. Verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The implied affirmative is I'm not going to give you day and time. However, this is going to happen when the spirits poured out and when the spirit is poured out. You're going to receive power and you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the very ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. That is the answer Jesus gives. And please think about how this is connecting all the way back to the very early promises of God. How are all the nations of the earth going to be blessed? Jesus is going to raise from the dead and he's going to send out his disciples with the gospel message of salvation and restoration to the ends of the earth. And so here is the answer. I'm not going to tell you day and time, but here is what I do want you to know is you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and that's going to cause you then to be my witnesses. And so I want us to think about how it's an implied affirmative. He doesn't say, no, 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 this is, you've got it all wrong. Uh, we need to delay another 40 days, and I'm going to give you some more uh, crash course teaching about all of this, but essentially, Not now, but soon you're going to wait for it. And that's how acts begin with all of this is waiting for the promise of the father wants you to wait for these things to take place. And it's how the gospel of Luke even ended is this waiting. And so when the spirit comes, that's going to be the, the key point. And you're going to receive power when the spirit comes. And that is then going to be the initiation of of God's kingdom being restored, the call of salvation to the ends of the earth, God pouring out His blessings on His people, everything that everyone has been looking forward to, but especially the nation of Israel. We talked about last week in talking about what the promise of the Father was, that God had promised that He would restore a relationship with His people, that He would be their God, they would be His people, that He would then forgive their sins, that they would no longer be separated, but they'd be able to be the children of God and come into relationship with Him and enjoy the privileges of this established kingdom. And so the disciples are rightly asking, now? And it's, no, I'm not going to tell you exactly when. But here's what you're watching for. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And that'll initiate you as my witnesses. And notice right after that, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. I want you to see that this was a critical. Final discussion. It seems illogical to me to go, well, you disciples have it all wrong, bye. <laughs> as He was saying these things, you're going to be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And there He goes. And just immediately then He begins to leave and go into the clouds. And verse 10 says, they were watching into heaven, gazing into heaven as He went. And behold, two men stood by them with white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, whom was taken up before you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Let's start by noticing that we have eyewitness testimony of this. We spent time last week talking about how eyewitness testimony is everything. How do you know that there was a George Washington or a Plato or an Aristotle or anybody in all of history? Eyewitness testimony. People said, we saw him, we heard him, we wrote it down and that's why you can believe. And we talked about that for proof of resurrection that here are these people saying, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. Not only do they have that eyewitness testimony of the resurrection, they have it for the ascension. They're saying, we saw him go into the sky. He was there talking to us. We were discussing the kingdom of God. We were asking questions. He gave an answer and we saw him go. Eyewitness testimony is everything in terms of history. It's everything in terms of what we believe as to who really existed and what was merely story here are the apostles saying not only did we see him raised from the dead and we heard him and touched him and spent time with him but they're also able to say we saw him go why is that so important why does the book of acts want to start with the ascension and what does that have to do with the kingdom of God? And why does that matter for us? Why is that such a big deal? Why why talk about this? Why have this section here? Why not just get on to Acts 2? There are two big reasons why the ascension is critical to Christian faith. Why it matters so much. The first is to know the Old Testament prophets. And you listen to Daniel chapter 7 again. Daniel chapter 7 probably has the most vivid prophecy about the kingdom of God in regards to what the ascension meant. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, notice what Daniel says that he sees in vision. It says there in in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the ancient of days and presented, was presented before him. Just stop and think about the imagery. In Acts 1, the perspective is the disciples watching the Son of Man go into the clouds. From Daniel's perspective of the vision, he sees the Son of Man coming in the clouds to the Ancient of Days. It's almost as if you had two points of view going on at the same time. Here are the disciples they are saying there He goes in the clouds and here's heaven saying here He comes in the clouds and He presents Himself to the Ancient of Days. Now, why does that matter? Look at the rest of Daniel. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. One of the first pictures that we are getting out of Daniel 7 and why Acts wants to relate the ascension is because the ascension is showing that Jesus has gone to the Father and has received authority, power, glory, and a kingdom. You might remember a, a, a passage that is frequently quoted in the New Testament Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies essentially under your feet, a footstool for your feet. I'm going to subjugate all of your enemies. Well, that's the picture. Jesus leaves the earth, ascends back into heaven, and he receives authority, power, rule, and a kingdom. And he's going to rule until all the enemies are put under his feet. Remember that We saw in Acts 1 and verse 1, the very first words where Luke says to Theophilus, my first book, my first account that I wrote to you was all that Jesus began to do and teach. We said began. I thought the gospel was the whole story of Jesus. No, no, Luke says that was just the start. That was the beginning of his work and Him ascending to the throne is now the continuation of His work. He now takes the throne and continues to rule as king. And as the Scriptures tell us, and He will continue to do so until all the enemies are put under His feet. And Daniel chapter 7 was prophetically showing that the Son of Man is going to go in the clouds. He's going to come to the Ancient of Days, the Father, And by doing so, that's going to mean something. And it will be so meaningful about him receiving glory and rule and power and a kingdom that in Acts 2, Peter's whole sermon derives off of that truth. That it was important to know where Jesus is. He's ascended and that means he's on the throne and he's ruling and has power. So that's the first aspect of the, of the ascension. Why is it important? He has to go to sit on the throne. He has to go to put all the enemies under his feet. He has to go so that he will receive all authority, power, and, and dominion. In fact, those are the final words in Matthew's account of what Jesus has before he goes is to say those very words. All authority and power and rule has been given to me on heaven and earth. Well, the Ascension is reflecting that very truth as he goes and takes his rightful place on the throne. The second important aspect of the Ascension is found here in the very words of these two men and what they say in verse 10 and 11. They are, are seen in verse 10, two men in white robes stand beside the disciples and they ask this question in verse 11, why do you stand looking into the sky? I'm a smart aleck. And so my answer would be, did you just see that? What do you mean? Why do you stand looking in the sky? Are you kidding me? I've never seen anybody do that before. I mean, the last time you have a record of that would have been Elijah. I mean, people don't go flying into the sky and they're asking the question, well, why do? You, why are you standing there? Why are you watching like that? Well, why is it? Because there's something important to understand. Verse 11, this Jesus who was taken up from you, into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go the second important truth about why the ascension is so important is that these say if he went he's coming back if he left he must come back And that's what they say. Don't just stand there looking. It's almost as if to say like he's never coming back. He's coming back. He's absolutely returning. And the implication is, which will be Peter's sermon in chapter 3 of Acts, he's coming back when his work is done. When he's accomplished all that needs to be accomplished, he establishes this rule and rules over heaven and earth, he will come back. Now, the thing that I want to make as our message this morning and ultimately our hope is the hope that is given to these disciples. Jesus is coming back. Now, I believe we struggle with that because so much time has passed by. Is that not what makes us hard? Is we read a text like that, and here's the promise, He's certainly coming back. Take hope. He's coming back. And we read that and go, but it's been really a long time. I mean, almost 2,000 years at this point. So... Should we really think that he's coming back? Is it really possible that he's certainly going to return? Should we really have this hope of him coming in the clouds and returning to gather his own when so much time has passed by? But let's take a step back and think about how much time has occurred and apply that to the promises of God. When God made a promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed, how long did that take? Well, it took about 2,000 years actually. And the point that I want us to consider is that length of time should not shake faith. Think about how often... God gives promises that take a really long time, not like one year or two years kind of time, but thousands of years. God gave many promises that were going to take an awful long time to be fulfilled. Not only can you think of like Abraham as an example of such a promise, imagine being a people of Israel Days of the judges or like we've been studying in the the days of the kings. How long did it seem before a Messiah, the Christ, was going to arrive? You've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years going by that Israel would begin to think, well, he's clearly not coming. There isn't going to be a first coming of Christ. Look at how much time has gone by. It's been tons of time. It's been thousands of years If you marked it off of Moses, you'd probably say, it's been 1,500 years, he's not going to come. So many of God's promises take a really long time. In fact, you might remember the writer of Hebrews even argues that of those people of faith that are written about, none of them saw the fulfillment of the promises were made. None of them. How often did the prophets speak of things that they never saw come to fruition? You might, I think, successfully argue all of them. All of them were talking about things way in the future. And so I want us to see that it is not unusual for God to allow huge periods of time to go by. He does that a lot. It's not like, well, all the promises were always fulfilled within the generation of the people who heard them. That was actually pretty rare. Usually long amounts of times had to go by, which then leads, I think, to another question. And so, so why does he take so long? Why do we have to wait? So long. Why did he make Israel wait so long for Christ to first come? Why did the promise to Abraham take so long to be fulfilled? Why tell the prophets things that would take so long to be fulfilled? You, know, you tell Isaiah, hey, a virgin's going to conceive and bear a child in over 700 years. <laughs> Can you imagine if we had a promise given to us in the 1300s? We'd be like, okay, that's not going to happen, right? And say, like that is so long ago. That is so ancient. And God's going, no, no. I have no problem with time. Why? One of the things the Scriptures are always showing us is who's going to have faith? Who's going to have faith? You know, it's easy to have faith if you only have to wait a day. (laughs) uh, This will all happen by next week. Okay, I can handle a week. You want to know when faith is really challenged? When it falls outside of your lifetime. To really believe that the things that God said will come to pass, even if we don't see one bit of it. Abraham didn't see a bit of it. Moses didn't see a bit of it. None of the heroes of faith saw a bit of it. They got little glimpses of possibilities, but everything was a trajectory so far away. And we come along and go, well, what's taking so long? Well, that's what God always does. So I don't want us to be disturbed by the length of time, God likes to take a long time. He's not troubled by the length of time. Nothing has gone wrong. All is going according to God's plan. We think long time means something's gone awry. And God says, No, no. That's exactly how I planned it to be. I just want you to wait for it. I want to see who will have faith. As you wait for His coming. And so that is one of the reasons why I think God does this is a challenge of our faith. Will we believe in his promises? Will we believe in what God is ultimately accomplishing? And that leads to the second part of why the Ascension matters and why it gives us hope. Number one, he is going to come back and the amount of time it takes for him to come back does not nullify the fact that he's coming back. He is certainly coming back. If you believe that he rose from the dead, you believe that eyewitness testimony and you believe the eyewitness testimony that he left, then he's coming back. And then second, since he hasn't come back, he's still ruling. You say, well, why is that hope? Well, that's a very big hope is the Ascension means that Jesus has ascended to the throne, has taken His rightful place. He's been given all authority, all power, all rule, and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So should I be worried about what's going on in our culture right now? No. See, here's hope. God's not asleep. And the promises are not dead. Him continuing to reign on the throne and not return gives us hope that He's in charge. And with all the chaos that goes on and all the things that can cause us a disturbance in our hearts and to be concerned about what's going on on the earth or in our country or in our state or in a local area, doesn't mean that God's not ruling. In fact, we're able to have confidence. No, God is on the throne and He has all rule, all authority, all power. And so as I look at the problems that our world has and I look at all the concerns that go on all around us, rather than having a nervousness or or being completely shaken, I'm supposed to have hope because I know that Christ is on the throne. If he hasn't come back yet, and he hasn't, then I know where he's at. He's reigning. He's ruling until the, all the enemies have been put under his feet. So that helps us because we know that when we are suffering, he's on the throne and he's coming back. And when life doesn't go according to plan, we know He's on the throne and He's coming back. And when life completely blows up like 2020 did, and all we're left is the shrapnel of a mess of a year, we know He's on the throne and He's coming back. This is what we have given to us. You can have hope. Because you know where he's at. He's reigning. He's taken his rightful place. What's taking so long? He's putting more enemies under his feet. He's continuing to reign until every nation and every people are put under His feet. He's continuing to reign to see who is going to belong to Him, who is going to have faith. He continues to wait and reign because He is a patient and long-suffering God and He doesn't want any to perish and He will continue to give more and more time to more and more people because He doesn't want a single person lost. And that's why there's so much time going by. It's wonderful for us we go, "Well, I'm safe, so hurry up and come back." But what about the rest of the millions upon billions of people? God wants them back. He wants them too. And that keys into the apostles' job to go be witnesses to the ends of the earth and go tell the world about the great message of the gospel and tell them Jesus is King. He's on the throne and He is coming back. And don't worry about time. And don't worry if it's in your lifetime or not. And don't worry if it takes another 2,000 years, that's okay. And if it takes 10,000 years, that's okay. If He wants to take as long as He wants to take, He'll take as long as He wants to take and nothing has gone wrong. Not a thing. He's reigning. And thus these two men come to these disciples and say, why are you staring at the sky? He's coming back. And him coming back is one of our greatest hopes. That's what we are waiting for. That's what we're longing for. We know he's coming back. And that gives hope to the people of God. When the world gets upset, he's coming back. And He's on the throne. And it gives us the hope of eternity to know He's gone to prepare a place for us. And we will be joined to Him at some time. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for showing us the ascension of Your Son and showing us the importance of Him leaving this earth. And that we are able to see with the eyewitness testimony that he has gone to the place where he belongs. And Lord, may we always have a strong faith to know that our Lord has not disappeared. And that our Lord has not forgotten. Or that our Lord does not care but that we would remember that our Lord is on the throne. Lord, we know that you are sovereign over all things. And you see the mess of the world. You see the mess of the way things are in our, in our world today. You see the mess that we make because of sin. God, we pray that we would see your hand in the events that happen in the future. Lord, we pray regarding this virus, Lord, we pray that you would take it away. That you'd take it away in such a way that you'd be glorified. That this virus would cause all the earth to turn its eyes to you and give you the glory that you deserve. Lord, we pray for the state of affairs of our country. We pray that all people would know that the solution is you. And to turn to you with all of your heart. You are our Savior. You're our Lord, you're our Master, and you're our King. And Lord, as we are in difficult times, please continue to fill us up with hope. Help us to ever be aware of your power and your rule over this earth. Help us to never be shaken by the things that go on in the daily affairs of our lives or of the earth to help us to see you clearly, to know that you are there and to know that you are certainly coming back. Give us that hope. Fill us with that understanding and give us the courage to live with the knowledge that you're coming back. Give us the courage to live faithfully for you with hearts that are devoted to you and that our lives reflect your glory because we know you're coming back. In Jesus' name, amen. In a moment here, we're going to sing an invitation song. We do invite you to come to Jesus because He's coming back. He is certainly returning. And He certainly rules over all things. And all of this time is so that we would get our lives ready to meet Him. If you have not been living your life in the way that you are, this is your opportunity to turn to Him before it's too late, before He does come back, to give your life to Him, serve Him with all of your heart, turn away from your sins, confessing Jesus to be the Lord and Savior who rules over all things, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and to walk with Him faithfully. Can we help you in any way? Would you let us know while we stand and while we sing?